As I read the gospel this week, and uh, in preparation, of course, for a homily, and for those that don't believe I prepare homilies, that you know, know that I do, uh, but I was reminded of uh, an episode when I was in high school. I had a job, and uh, every once in a while it would happen that somebody would call and ask to switch a shift or, or whatever. And one particular day, it was somebody that uh, only called, of course, it would have been odd as she called a little bit more often. Uh, she was the mother of one of my classmates, and my classmate was one of the youngest, so you can just do the math, she was substantially older than me. But she, in a very sing-song voice, how you doing? What do you want? I knew exactly what she wanted. And the only question was, what day did she want me to take for her? And so with, with that kind of idea in mind, uh, James and John coming up to Jesus, perhaps I can't hear it in anything other than a sing-song. We want you to do for me whatever we ask of you. And Jesus, being very wise, before he commits one way or the other, what do you want? Well, we want to sit at your right and the other at your left when you come in your glory. This is not a, a place of leisure or a, just, just a, a, a proximity or, or whatever, but rather uh, what they were asking for is to sit in the most coveted spots. If Jesus comes in glory as king, they wanted to be his advisors, one at the right, the other at the left. They wanted these positions of power and prestige. Never mind the fact that Jesus had already prophesied for a number of times that he was going to be crucified, that he was going to be handed over by the Jews to the Gentiles. He was going to be crucified, and three days later he shall be raised. They didn't understand what that meant, but all the same, it's kind of hard to misunderstand crucifixion. It's kind of hard to misunderstand arrested. When you come in your glory, command that we sit at your right and your left. If you pay attention enough to the Gospels, you know that when Jesus came in his glory, they weren't at his left and his right. According to St. John, St. John was at the foot. But that was for the good and the bad thief. The end, you know, between you and I, they were both bad because they got caught. But that's a bad joke. But uh, dismiss the good and the bad thief sitting at the right and the left, or rather hanging on the cross. That's the moment Jesus enters into his glory. And of course, because of his resurrection, that glory is transfigured and transformed. But it wasn't his to give away. But first he asks them a question. Can you drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism with which I am to be baptized? And without even thinking, of course we can. This is rather audacious. That's the only word I can come up with to explain what they're doing. They have no clue what it means for Jesus to enter his glory. They have no clue what, what cup is he talking about. They have no clue the baptism and so often, even us today, some 2,000 years later, might ask, well, what is this baptism? What is this cup? Because we're Catholic, we might, we might say, well, it's the cup of, of the Eucharist, the chalice. We might say it's the, the sacrament of baptism. And in a way, it is, but only by extension. 
It is what gives the chalice its power, what gives the sacrament of baptism its authority. It's Jesus' death. He says he's going to be baptized on the cross. Not baptized with water, but baptized with pain. The word baptism itself means to be immersed. He's going to suffer. He's going to die. And they don't understand it, and they say, of course. And, and Jesus, again, reminds them it's not his to give. And the other apostles are, are indignant. And some, sometimes I think, well, they might have said, well, why didn't we think about that? Why didn't we ask? And each one would have had their own claim. Each one could have said, well, you know, Peter could have said, well, you know, he, he's given me a nickname. He calls me Peter. He, he you know, he, he seems to, uh, I seem to be closest to him. Judas could have said, well, you know, I hold the money bag, you know. Or, or you know, James could have said, well, you know, I'm going to be the first to be beheaded or first to be martyred. Uh, of course, he didn't know that maybe at the time. They would all have their claim. And they're vying for these places of, of authority. And Jesus calls them on it. Thank God we don't have that problem now with those who have authority lorded over us, right? It continues, doesn't it? And Jesus says, for for those who follow him, that is not the case. The one who has authority, the one who wants power must serve all. They must, of course, first be followers of him and then service. How service is the key to everything. And while at this moment they don't fully understand what it means to serve, they will. John is the only one of the eleven who remain faithful to not abandon, or to not to not suffer martyrdom, a physical martyrdom. John, though, of course, suffers what sometimes is called a white martyrdom by his desire. He lived a life of martyrdom. But all the others were martyred. All of them became servants, going to the ends of the earth. James to Spain, Peter to Rome, uh, Thomas to India. Others to other far-flung areas of the known world at the time. Jesus tells them, gives them the example that he came not to be served, but to serve. And if, if he came to serve, who are we as his followers to think we can be, be served? Who are we to think we can just simply lead and command people? And wouldn't that be nice, though, if we could? You, you go here, you go there. You know, there's that story of the centurion. I ask one servant to come, and he comes. I'm another servant to go, and go. He goes. And Jesus uses that as, as an example of faith. But in the end, it's service. That we remember that Jesus Christ gave his life. As we hear it here, gave his life as ransom for many. Just as an aside, when we uh, trans, trans, uh, transfer to the new translation, there were some that were upset about the prayers, the, the words of consecration over the chalice shed for you and for the many. And Maybe they had a point. Because if they understood that Jesus Christ suffers and dies for all, which he does, 
They were thinking that then this is universal salvation, that, that it's shed for all, which it isn't. It's shed for those who come to him. Only those who come to him find ransom. Those who do not come to him are going to find themselves ransom or still bound to somebody else without a ransom. Jesus Christ comes to serve. But in order for us to be ransomed, we too must serve. Who are we to think anything less? As we come this day, we pay attention to those that Christ has put in our lives that we are called to serve. You who are parents, of course, you know who you're called to serve. You're, you who are married are called to serve each other, to help each other find heaven. We're all called to serve in different ways. This day, perhaps, to ask, how are we called to serve more faithfully? And there's nothing ultimately wrong with asking and being audacious with our asking the Lord for things. But first we have to ask ourselves, are we willing to do what it takes? Are we willing to be a servant, a follower of Jesus Christ first? To give our lives in the way he did. Not necessarily in physical death of martyrdom, but rather maybe like St. John, of just living our lives, constantly proclaiming the love of Christ, constantly, constantly leading others to him constantly searching him out.